Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Speaker, I was pleased to speak with the heads of Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca over the past few days, and I can assure you that Canada is very much on track to continuing to receive doses of vaccines for Canadians. We are on track uh, to getting more than 3 million Canadians vaccinated by the end of Q1. That, of course, Mr. Trudeau talking about the vaccine rollout. It's very slow in this country. We're 20th in the world, even though we're a G7 nation. Conservative Party of Canada leader Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole, thank you very much for taking the time. And when you heard Mr. Trudeau and what he had to say, was he blindsided or unprepared? Absolutely unprepared, Roy. He's only achieving 15% of the numbers just a few weeks ago he told Canadians were coming. So uh, I've said when my if my son brought a, a test with 15% marked in red at the top home, that would not be on track. That would be failing with difficulty. So we need vaccines. We want him to succeed because we want to turn the corner and get our economy and our life back to normal. So we have to do better and they have to be more transparent on why they're why they're failing, why they're falling short. How critical are you of the European Union's decision yesterday or the announced decision yesterday? Well, here's my biggest frustration, Roy. Justin Trudeau has not learned any of the lessons from the first wave of the pandemic. We saw last March and April PPE being hoarded, not being able to cross borders. We saw planes not leaving China with with PPE for Canada. We knew that this would happen again with vaccines, which is why we really should have built the capacity to manufacture here directly under license or, or through a partnership. We totally botched that when Mr. Trudeau partnered with China and wasted four to five months. So we could have done this at home and not relied on, on the rest of the world. But, but since we are, it seems like our contracts can't guarantee the supply. He won't release the contracts. So like rapid tests, they seem to be months behind other, other G7, other G20 countries, and that's failing Canadians at a critical time. So I, I gather then that you don't believe Canada is going to receive the 4 million doses of vaccine the government insists we'll have by the end of March. You've already said that you don't see how Mr. Trudeau's commitment that all Canadians who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated by September. You don't think that that can be, uh, that can be met. Uh, address those points, keeping in mind that Pfizer now wants six doses of vaccine extracted from each vial, not the five, which was the original expectation. Well, I can't stress enough, Roy, we want him to, to make that, that those goals because we want to turn the corner in this pandemic. Uh, I've offered many times to, to try and help if we could. But look at the numbers. You need to, to vaccinate 30 million Canadians by, by September, and that would mean about 2 million doses per week. How many did we get this week? Zero. So I, I'm not sure when we're seeing huge reductions how he can forecast meeting his target. It's better to be honest and straightforward with Canadians, not secretive as they've been. People need to know when they can expect to be uh, vaccinated. They want to know that the vulnerable, the, the, the long-term care homes and our first responders and essential workers are taken care of first. Um, and this sort of each year, the number going down and down and down is causing real concern across the country, which is why we think they should release the contracts and be straight with Canadians.
There are things that you don't have any control over, and that would be in Mr. Trudeau's case as well. I mean, he doesn't have any control over the European Union saying we're going to uh, have to have or issue prior authorization before vaccines may be exported. Moderna also now reducing shipments to Canada. You're not, uh, he can't be in control of that. However, he is in control of the ordering, and he's made statements, and he's made commitments, and he's made promises to Canadians. Do you say, Mr. O'Toole, that Justin Trudeau is lying to Canadians, or is he exaggerating his vaccine procurement claims somewhere in, where, where, what would you say he's doing? I would say he's not being straight with Canadians, Roy. Uh, we were we were asking this last fall what the plan was. We 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 held debates in the House asking him to release the plan. Other countries were putting a lot of detail uh, out to the public, and Canada was not. They talk about having the world's largest portfolio, but Roy, I don't really want to have the most vaccines in 2022. I want to know what's coming in the short term so we can get our economy back on track. So uh, release the essential numbers from the contract. Let us know how many are options. Let us know if the contracts themselves say best efforts or you will get a supply after these other countries get supplied. This is probably why he doesn't want to release the details, because it didn't meet his, his initial promises to Canadians. Are you saying that he's lying? I'm saying he's not being straight. It, it's a crisis. I would hope he's not making up and misleading Canadians. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But I'll tell you, since last fall, we have been demanding this, Roy. And we knew when he showed up with some samples and did his, his regular Trudeau routine of, of great photo ops and no follow-up, the photo ops in mid-December led Canadians to think the vaccines were here and there was hope on the horizon. This week, we're in the midst of the second wave. There's zero vaccines arriving. That's unacceptable. So be straight with people. We'll understand if there's some delays out of your hands. But why did he partner with China? Why did he keep saying we were going to manufacture a vaccine here for months when he knew the Chinese deal fell apart? So there, there were so many mistakes by the government. And it's frustrating because we want them to do well. I'm probably the first opposition leader to say that because we got to get our country back back on track. we got to secure the economy, and vaccines are a key tool. Let's bring the issue of prioritizing vaccine distribution inside Canada's borders up here. Would you support withholding vaccine supply from areas in Canada where COVID infection numbers are low and directing extra vaccine to areas of the country where COVID numbers are high? In other words, hotspots. It's a political minefield question, Mr. O'Toole, but it's also a question which identifies leadership. What would you do? I would make sure that every single dose, Roy, went to the most vulnerable and the highest risk groups. And, and really, in the short term, that's almost irrelevant geographically. We know long-term care homes and, and the vulnerable people with, you know, hospitalizations, other things, they need them first, then our first responders, then essential workers. They are in higher risk groups. This is why we wanted a public education plan about vaccine prioritization last year. Let Canadians know if you're a middle-aged healthy person, you're going to be after people who are more critically at risk. No, so I get that, us, but what would you do? If you, were the, if you were the Prime Minister, what would you do, Mr. Atul? Would you divert vaccines to areas where there is a demonstrable need, hotspots, from areas where there isn't nearly as much COVID breakout? If 
if there were still vulnerable people like seniors in that hotspot, Roy, yes, because that's prioritization of need. The, the big failure of the Trudeau government is they haven't learned from the first wave. You have to take care of long-term care. You have to protect the vulnerable first. It's why last February I was asking for the military to be stood up and the Liberals laughed at me. I knew that our health capacity within the Canadian Armed Forces could help. Uh, provincial health systems and long-term care systems to tackle the most vulnerable. That's where you put your resources. So you're right. If if we get uh, the GTA done and there's outbreaks in Windsor, that was a real hot spot before, we then make sure that what supply we have goes to get the most vulnerable vaccinated there. So we eliminate the hospitalization and death risk. This is about leadership. And there's never been leadership for Mr. Trudeau. Lots of photo ops and, and tweets. But there's never follow-through and, and, and accountability. And that's what I'd like to see. That's what Canadians deserve. We have limited time with you, so I have two more questions. Is the government doing enough to safeguard Canadians from COVID at the border? You know the announcement made by Mr. Trudeau yesterday about returning to Canada at airports. Is that enough? What's, what he should be doing is having a national rapid testing program. If we had rapid testing deployed nationally through our airports, at borders, rapid tests can be done in a short order of time and give certainty, and then people could spend some time at home making sure that they they have a quarantine period that's more like five days, uh, like other countries are doing. So he's been slow to act, and the three key tools in this pandemic, Roy, are rapid tests, vaccines, and information. We're slow on the first two. And he's being secretive and and cumbersome on a full uh, information campaign for Canadians to educate them, let them know when they're going to be vaccinated. And and the rapid tests, if we had them, they would give us so much flexibility at borders and with travel and with airports. Canadians want to follow the public health rules. But without these key tools, this $2,000 stay at hotels and things like that is all because they didn't get the rapid tests deployed at the numbers we needed. There's conjecture about a federal election in the spring and how the two provinces which ultimately may decide an outcome, Quebec and Ontario, may vote. There's also the question about whether the Liberals will back away from pushing for an election if the vaccine rollout is seriously compromised. Now, we're not going to forget other provinces, particularly where we broadcast, like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. Daryl Bricker joins us, President and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and the author of Next... This is a great book which will tell you what's going to happen next in this country of ours. It belongs in every home in this country. Daryl, thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time. I don't know if you heard Mr. O'Toole, but how significantly will the vaccine rollout issue factor into whether an election takes place this spring federally? And how significant is the vaccine issue, success or lack of success, to the Liberals? Uh, it, it is the number one determinant about whether or not we will have an election in the spring. If we get to February and the public uh, is seeing that the government hasn't lived up to its obligations, uh, the, the goals that it's set in terms of vaccines, which, by the way, uh, the public is just starting to wake up to the idea that it's actually everything is going to be much later than they originally thought. But even living up to the, the goals that the government set for itself, if it's not able to do that there's going to be trouble. And any government going into an election campaign in which they are not performing really well on the number one issue, 
uh, that is a, a, a not a good situation for them in terms of, uh, of having an election. Um, now, the interesting thing on this, though, Roy, is that it may not actually be the Liberal Party that's causing the election. It could be the NDP and the Conservatives. When the Liberals bring in their budget, uh, which they've now said that they will be doing, if the vaccine issue is going really badly and we see that the momentum uh, is, is not in the direction of the government and that, uh, and that um, uh, the, the parties have gotten closer in terms of the national polling, we could very well see the opposition, party, uh, opposition parties trigger an election. So possibly an election in the spring, increasing potential that it's the opposition parties that trigger it, decreasing potential given what's happening with vaccines right now that the government uh, uh, precipitates the election. Yeah, it certainly doesn't look good at all. The optics are all wrong. And uh, later on this hour, you know, we keep hearing about how we need to have vaccine manufacturing capacity in Canada. Well, we have vaccine manufacturing capacity in Canada, and that's what my next two interviews are going to be about. But, Daryl, can I just just raise one question? Sure. You said the optics are wrong. Actually, it's the facts are wrong. Well, that's true. The the facts are the problem. I mean... The, the, the difficulty on this situation, and I know you, we, you and I have talked about this before, is you can't communicate your way out of it. The facts on sure. the ground are what everybody's paying attention to. They watch the number of cases every day, and they're sitting back waiting to get clear information on when they're going to be vaccinated. That's not a question of optics. That's a question of facts. Yeah, I stand corrected. Uh, Quebec and Ontario, if there is an election in the spring, how are Quebecers and Ontarians likely to vote and daryl is the vaccine issue does it have the potential to shift the dynamics in both of those provinces yeah it does um the uh thinking back to the last election which by the way was you know less than two years ago um in 2019 uh the conservative party uh failed to win the election even though it won the popular vote mainly because it didn't progressed very much in Quebec. They only won 10 seats. In Ontario, they only won 36 and got pretty much wiped out, except for your previous guest seat in uh, in Durham, uh, in Aaron O'Toole's riding. So uh, if we go into an election campaign this spring, if the Conservatives are able to, say, peel off 20 seats in the 905, then it's, it's, it's a very different type of situation. Now, you know, we broadcast as well in uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, going east to west, Alberta and British Columbia. And it's a very frustrating reality for people in Western Canada because they always say, and they say, you know, correctly, that Quebec and Ontario can dominate how the country actually decides the next government's going to evolve. What about those provinces? Do they have, is there the potential for the provinces to the west of Ontario to be really significantly important in how the, the next uh, election turns out? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's another one in which the facts have changed. Uh, given that we have a representation by population system, every 10 years, more seats get added in Western Canada than in any other part of the, the country, with the possible exception of the suburbs of, 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 of Ontario. But the importance of Western Canada in terms of national political outcomes grows with every election, and particularly with every census, because uh, uh, the, the most rapidly growing population in, in the country is actually in Western Canada and has been for a couple of decades. And all so, people need to do is read your book. Next. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's what I talk about. I mean, we have this perception 
uh, that, you know, for example, the entire political game is about winning in Ontario and Quebec. Well, Stephen Harper showed in 2011 it isn't the entire game. I think he won five seats in the province of Quebec and won a pretty strong majority, mainly because he won the 905, the suburbs in the, around the city of Toronto, but also he did incredibly well in Western Canada. And that's a new way of winning elections. The old way of Ontario and Quebec and just, you know, not worrying about Western Canada, that's not as viable as it used to be. So in the 15 seconds we have left, it's all in play then, depending it's on all, what happens well, with the with vaccine. With the exception of probably of, of Alberta and Saskatchewan, yeah, but most of the country is pretty much in play. Wow. Daryl, thank you so much. It's always great talking to you, and uh, I stand corrected. You put uh, you put missiles into both of my engines. <laughs> Sorry about that, right? <laughs> no, no, it's I'm okay. Fan, you know that. <laughs> it's okay. It's always great talking to you. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. I always enjoy speaking with Daryl. Dr. Gerson, thank you for coming back on the program. I think it's important that we talk to you, particularly since we keep hearing we need to establish vaccine production capacity in this country. We have it. You have it. Tell us about your facility and the capacity of NuVax to manufacture vaccines needed for Canadians. Hi, Roy. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, we've got a large capacity vaccine manufacturing plant in Montreal. It's the second largest facility in all of Canada. Uh, We could probably make 100 million doses a year of a vaccine of any of the basic types, I mean, the virus-based, the traditional protein ones, or the new mRNA vaccines. We can make them all. It's a very flexible and nice plant. It's been approved in the past by Health Canada. And, you know, we just need the usual things. I mean, we've got the plant. You always need that. We've got the skills and the ability and the people. Uh, we need the process. And we've been talking to three or four different potential sources of the process. And then, of course, you need the funds to implement the process and actually make the product. Yeah, but you're ready to go, essentially. We're uh, ready to if, go. If, if you got the green light, you can go very quickly, right? Sorry, say again? If you got the green light and you got, if you got the funding required, because it's, none of this is free, um, you, you could get it started very quickly. Absolutely. And we're, we want to very, very much. Okay, so now you contacted the federal government and they rejected, from what I understand, new vax. And tell us, please, about the situation between your company, and the National Research Council, NRC, in your words? Well, you know, we've been talking to the government, uh, Industry Canada, since uh, March, and, you know, nothing much happened. Uh, The NRC is right next to us. They're building a new building now with government funding. But, you know, as I think I've said before, it takes a very long time, A, to build the building, and B, to prove that it meets all of Health Canada requirements, so I don't see them being ready for a very long time, several years. Uh, We could start tomorrow, and as I say, we've got very large capacity. So, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate that the Canadian government is sort of competing with private industry. On the other hand, we've got capacity, and if they're making more, you know, it's not likely Canada's going to have enough or too much, and if we have too much capacity, we can help other countries around the world. So it it's, uh, doesn't make sense to me or many other people to have an idle plant beside one being built and neither of them making product when, you know, at least we could be starting, as I said, tomorrow. You have a long record of successfully producing vaccines internationally. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, yes. I've been doing this since uh, we had Connaught Labs uh, in Canada, you know, in the 80s. There we produced uh, 90, 85 or so percent of the Canadian vaccine requirement, plus enormous quantities for UNICEF. 
Uh, Connaught was one of the largest suppliers of smallpox vaccine and the smallpox eradication program. And that pretty much all ended with the sale of Connaught to a foreign company. Um, and it's it's got a big plant, but I don't see it participating in helping to solve this problem right now. But that's, you know, that's up to them. We very much want to participate. We very much want to help supply both vaccines and therapeutic monoclonal antibodies to the Canadian public. That's why we're here. So what have they said to you? I mean, they, w- w- how do they how do they justify what do they say to you when when you you just for some reason don't make the cut when we need obviously we need vaccines and i i get it you know you're in the vaccine production business you're not developing new vaccines if i understand this correctly but right. you, produ- you can produce them yep. if you get the necessary component parts what what do they say to you when they say no thanks how do they put it um silence <laughs> that's it so i don't know i don't know what they're thinking <laughs> I, I really don't know but i do know that we can do it i do know that we have uh discussed this with other partners around the world um you know in in uh china and in korea we've put in manufacturing plants that are going today and and employ literally thousands of people all together uh, we're starting another one, another country that's going well right now, and you know we can't get traction in our own country. It's it's um, well, you know, you could say it's hilarious. Well, except it isn't. Um, right, <laughs> Dr. Gerson, what do you make of the decision taken by the EU that uh, their vaccines or vaccines that are produced, created, produced? In European Union nations, and the EU says, look, we put the money into this, into the development, so we have to have priority at the, uh, right. at the end, at the end of the process. What do you make of the decision that they have taken? And we talked about it with Mr. O'Toole. We talked about it with uh, Paul Lucas, who you know. Uh, what do yeah. you make of this decision? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's a kind of human nature. Uh, it's entirely to be expected in tough times to take care of your own. I think that's human nature most of the time, not all the time. And it just points out once again, which is what I've been saying since literally since the 80s, uh, that nations need their own national vaccine production capacity. And this is what uh, other countries have realized, and we're helping them with that. And somehow Canada got off the rails, you know, I would say by about 1990, more or less, uh, we lost that capacity. Um, you know, we're offering it now. We'd be happy to help. Um, and it's, it's necessary, I think, for every country in the world to have especially emergency vaccine manufacturing capacity uh, in its own territory under its own control. It doesn't have to be government, but I think private industry probably does this quite well. But it does have to be there because this is natural. You've got life-threatening situation. Um, you know, this is why countries have armies for life-threatening situations. This is why countries need their own vaccine supply to protect themselves from a different kind of enemy. Exactly. The European Union controlling and limiting exporting of vaccines until the end of March. And the EU saying, we put money into the development of these vaccines. And so we and our countries in the bloc have to have the first crack at them. And if that means you don't, that's just the way it is. Well, Canada is not on the list of nations that are exempt from this uh, 
this controlling and limiting of vaccine exports by the EU is, well, where does Canada rank? Here's the question. Where does Canada rank on the list of priority nations as far as major pharmaceuticals exporting vaccines is concerned? We've spoken with my next guest about this in the past. He's written op-eds, opinion uh, pieces about it. Paul Lucas is the former president and CEO of pharmaceutical company, large, huge company, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, Mr. Lucas, thank you very much for the time. And let me ask you first to, uh, for your comments on the EU decision to control vaccine exports. Any surprise there? No, I'm not surprised. Uh, during the H1N1 pandemic, uh, we had the same situation going on around the world. And uh, at the end of the day, it became a non-event. I, you know, I, I have a sense that, you know, this is a classical political move on the part of the EU. They're taking criticism from their member companies or countries uh, because they don't have enough vaccines. So what do you do? You throw, you know, you throw people under the bus is what you do to protect yourself. And I think that's what's happening. You know, we have to you know, control the borders and so on. I think at the end of the day, that would be a major, uh, you know, a major mistake on the part of the EU. It would cause a major trade war, whatever. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be a smart thing to do. And I, frankly, Roy, I, I you know, I think we, we're going to receive the, our doses by, by the end of March. Uh, to me, you know, the six million doses that we're getting from Pfizer and Moderna by the end of March is a drop in the bucket. And the EU won't even notice that coming out of the EU. Uh, to me, that is the big issue. Where should we be? And I'll ask you again. I mean, you, you've already explained this to us in previous interviews, but I'll ask you to explain to us again. Where should we be and why are we not? Yeah, I mean, we should we should really be where Israel is. And Israel's vaccinated over 50 percent of their population. If we had done the proper planning, we would we would have been there. We would have been heroes at, at worst. We should be up where the UK is, where they've vaccinated 13% of their population, or even the US, which has vaccinated 8.5% of its population. We've vaccinated 2.5% of our population. And I, I think I know why this has happened. Um, you know, if, if you were going to get approval for uh, these two vaccines by December, why did not Mr. Trudeau and the government order 20 million doses of each? They could have done that. Uh, the UK ended up getting millions of doses. They ended up getting 16 times as much many doses as we did in December alone. The US got 160 times the number of doses we got. So, you know, we could have ordered 20 million doses of each of those vaccines to be delivered through January, December, January, February, March of this year. They didn't do that. And I think that is the fundamental question that the government has not answered at this point in time. I think I know what happened. I think what happened was they assumed that they were going to get approval in Canada for vaccines in January, February or March. And therefore, they they constructed all of their contracts, as you know, each for 20 million doses or 40 million doses. They, they constructed those starting in April. And what happened was all of a sudden we got an earlier approval. And this is where the major blunder happened. You know, why would you only bet on one scenario? 
they should have said, well, if we're going to, if we, if we happen to get earlier approval, we should make sure we're getting 20, 40, 60 million doses in the first quarter of 2021. They didn't do that. And to me, that's the major blunder that they made. And it just shows nobody was on the ball in terms of their planning. Uh, and then what they had to do was go to Pfizer and Moderna and basically beg them for doses because the contract said they weren't going to get any until April. So they, the, you know, Mr. Trudeau and the government, uh, Minister Anand probably went to Pfizer and Moderna and said, look, we just got early approval. Can you get us some doses? And Pfizer probably said, yeah, we can carve off 4 million doses until the end of March. And Moderna probably said, yeah, we can carve off 2 million doses. I mean, those are, those are pity numbers. Those are desperation numbers. Um, you know, but that's what the government was able to get. That's what the companies came up with. And I think we should be, we should be praising those two companies for actually giving us anything at this point in time. Because we don't have contracts, good solid contracts, until April. Well, you've that's told a long-winded us. answer to your question, but I think that's what happened. I think it's just terrible planning and uh, not looking at what the various scenarios could be. You've also told us that um, the relationship between large pharmaceutical companies and the government of Canada, and particularly the, the Trudeau government, the two Trudeau governments, not a very positive reality. No, that's true. And I, you know, I think that's another factor. There's a couple of other factors as to why we're in this situation. Um, and if you read about what's happened in the UK, you know, they, they have a, the government there has a great relationship with the pharmaceutical sector. They've nurtured that sector. When the pandemic came, they hired somebody from the uh, private sector to run their national task force. And that person pulled on people from the pharmaceutical sector that know this business inside out. And that's why they're performing. One of the reasons why they're performing as well as they did. The U.S. did the same thing. They, they pulled on an ex-GlaxoSmithKline head of uh, R&D to head up the Warp Speed Initiative. And they put the right people in place who knew something about vaccines and something about the pharmaceutical industry, drew on their relationships with the industry, and look where they are. They've vaccinated way more people than we have. We don't have that relationship here in Canada. The, the, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet wouldn't know who to call because they've never supported the innovative pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and therefore, it's kind of disappeared over the years. And clearly, the, that industry is not a welcome industry in the eyes of the Liberal government. So we also, and, and you've challenged them on this as well, we hear repeatedly that what we need in Canada is domestic vaccine manufacturing capacity. We have it, do we not? We do. And, you know, again, with the proper planning, and I think, you know, this is where I'm, I've become a lot more critical, is everything I look at that this government has done at the federal level shows that everything has been a, a reaction. There's been no planning there's been no proaction. It's all reaction. You know, if they had started five years ago understanding a pandemic was coming and everybody knew it was coming at some point, they would have been working with the industry. They would have been working with, you know, the, the knowledgeable people in Canada to say, okay, how can we prepare and make sure we've got domestic manufacturing for vaccines in Canada? 
And we'd probably be in that situation today if they'd done that planning, but they didn't do it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 